For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. Raised from the Dead, Part 2, Revelation chapter 11, um, verses 11 through 14. So good afternoon. Glad you're back with us. We're back together by God's grace, and we're considering the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ and the triumph of the church in Revelation chapter 11. The triumph that we see in verses 11 through, thir- 11 through 14, 11 through 13, uh, that triumph is set within a context of tribulation. It's defined as triumph. It's seen as triumph because it's set in the context of great tribulation. To he who overcomes, I'll give him uh, the crown of life, right? It's we are to be overcomers. And what are we overcoming? We're overcoming this world. What is the victory that has overcome this world? Our faith. We're to live as faithful believers, faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in this wicked, evil, and perverse generation. And so the victory, this triumph of the church that we see is a triumph in the midst of great tribulation. We're not promised a life that is free from suffering. We're not promised a life that is free from tribulation. In fact, we are promised that we will go through tribulation. Paul has said, it is with much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We've got to get that through our minds, through our heads, right? We are going to face difficulty. Don't think it's strange when those fiery trials come upon you. The Bible does not say that we will be kept from tribulation. The Bible everywhere affirms that we will be kept through tribulation, that we will be preserved through tribulation. And the Bible says that the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, but the Lord also knows how to to deliver the godly out of their temptations, speaking particularly of the difficulty that they face in this evil age. He is able to keep that which we've committed to him against that day. Amen? So the church in her witness for the Lord Jesus Christ during this present evil age, is at enmity with the seed of the serpent. The Bible tells us that's the case, and that is the case we know in our own experience. As evil men and imposters grow worse and worse, as the kingdoms of this world ramp up their opposition to the kingdom of the Lord, of our Lord and of his Christ, behind them is the power and activity of this ascending or ascendant beast. Right behind all of that are principalities and powers, are angels, masquer- demons masquerading as angels of light. Behind all of that is the power and work of this ascendant beast. And near the end of the age, before the blast of the seventh trumpet and the return of Christ on the clouds, this age will climax in a, a brief but intense period of great tribulation, right? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, then you'll see the Son of Man uh, coming on the clouds of heaven. It's a period of intense and severe tribulation that has not been since the beginning of the world, no, nor ever shall be. It's a period of unprecedented tribulation. The beast will make war with the saints, Revelation 11, Daniel chapter 7. In the words of Daniel, he prevails against them. In the words of uh, the vision given to John, he overcomes them and he kills them. The power of the holy people will be destroyed. The power of the holy people will be crushed. Their bodies lying in the streets of this world for three and a half days. 
we'll, again, we looked at what that period of time points to. The world rejoices over them, gloats over them, believing that their witness has been silenced. Those who tormented the earth dwellers with their message have been silenced. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Oh, thank you, brother. That's not the end of the story. That's not the final word. The Bible says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the spread of the gospel and against the increase of his church. The enemies of God may have gloated. Think with me, right, about those circumstances. We see that picture in the Bible. The enemies of God may have gloated as Abraham took up the dagger and walked up the mountain with Isaac, thinking they were going to accomplish a great victory, right? The enemies of God may have gloated as the wicked queen, Athaliah, thought she had wiped out the line of David, seeking to kill everyone from the line of David. And they hid Joash from her, right? The enemies of God, the death of that child, that last child must have thought they won some great victory. Just as they gloated when the Lord Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross, the enemies of God believing that they had won some great victory. Maybe they were gloating over their progress, over the progress that they had made in the thousand years of darkness before the Reformation. Maybe they were gloating over their victories as though the gospel had been lost to history just before the Reformation. They will gloat again when they believe that they have silenced the church. The enemies of God may gloat and they may rejoice in our suffering, but there's victory. There is triumph waiting for the church. The church has been many times in history, many times, certainly in biblical history, redemptive history, but also in recent history, the church has been through great periods before where it would appear to have been overcome by corrupt corruption, overcome by error, overcome by persecution, overcome by problems and sin from within. When genuine believers were hunted down and tortured, when they faced mocking and scourging, trial and imprisonment, to borrow language from Hebrews chapter 11, right? A stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with a sword, destitute, afflicted, tormented, wandering in deserts and mountains, dens and caves, God's martyroi, those of whom the world is not worthy. But Hebrews says in the hall of faith there that they would not accept deliverance from their trials, from their suffering, from their difficulty. Why? It says there that they might obtain a better resurrection, a better resurrection, the resurrection from the dead. They had their hope fixed on the return of the Lord and being raised from the dead. They sought a better homeland, a better country. Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Revelation eleven thirteen, mirroring that very same language, says in the very same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tent of the city fell. You see how those events are, they're recording the same event. And verse 30, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds, uh, from one end of heaven to the other. So persecution, suffering, difficulty, adversity is not the end of the story. Resurrection to glory is the end of our story. And we have that to look forward to. On the other side of our difficulty, there is glory. Our inheritance, our God awaits. Um, that's what uh, awaits us. So brothers and sisters, we have to persevere. We must persevere.
God will preserve his cross-bearing people through their tribulation. He will keep us, and then God will raise them from the dead. Our persecution, our suffering is the path to glory. We have to view it that way. We see that, that triumph in verse 11. Now, after the three and a half days, after their dead bodies are lying on the street, after the world, the, the enemies of God gloat over them, after three and a half days, a period of time that relates to the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet. Uh, Ezekiel says he saw them, a great army. Great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Twice their enemies saw them, do you see? Now last week in part one, we considered that reference to three and a half days and what that reference uh, means. We considered the imagery of this great resurrection that was first given to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, as Ezekiel stood in the valley of dry bones and looked at all those corpses, those skeletons lying there. And the Bible says here that great fear fell on those who saw them. They ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. There's an emphasis placed on their enemies seeing them. Their enemies, once gloating over them, were then silenced with fear at witnessing their resurrection. This wasn't a secret resurrection. This wasn't a mysterious resurrection. This was a visible and evident resurrection. And the enemies of the church, the enemies of God, witnessed their resurrection. Then, verse 12, those same enemies hear a voice from heaven saying to those witnesses who had been raised to life, come up here. So think with me, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They see that glorious resurrection they see that those whom they killed, they're rejoicing in, they're rejoicing over, right? The dancing is going on, the music is playing, and all of a sudden, party's over, right? Everything comes to a halt. Great fear falls upon them as they see them raised from the dead, and then they hear the voice from heaven come up here. What is this? This is a vindication. This is a vindication. There's emphasis placed on here, uh, here on what the enemies of God's people see and hear, what they see and hear. This is a vindication. David prays this way in Psalm 35. It's not wrong, it's not sinful whatsoever to look forward to and to expect this vindication. Psalm 35, David says in verse 19, let them not rejoice over me who are wrongfully my enemies, nor let them wink with the eye who hate me without a cause. Incidentally, incidentally, this is the right way to complain. This is, this is a correct way to lament, right? We go to God. We go to God with our laments. We go to God with our woes, with our difficulties. We go to God because God is the one who is our strength. God is the one who vindicates us. It will be God who is justified in the day of judgment, right? God is the one we should go to. So David goes to God. Let, don't let them rejoice over me, God. Shut their mouths. Stop their gloating. Don't let them wink with the eye, those who hate me without a cause. Verse 20, for they do not speak peace, these are divisive people, factious people. They devise deceitful matters against the quiet ones in the land. They also opened their mouth wide against me and said, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. In other words, they thought to have seen David in his trouble, to, see, to have seen David at his weakest, to have seen God's people cast down. The people in the streets, you know, reveling, 
When these witnesses, when God's church is as though dead, lying in the streets of this world, when God's people are persecuted and the, those who dwell on the earth, when the enemies of God gloat over them, revel over them, they're acting like these people. Aha, we've seen it, right? They believe they've won some victory. They've triumphed over God's people, they think. Verse 22, this you have seen, O Lord. This is not outside God's sight. This is not outside God's understanding. He knows everything that's going on. David prays, do not keep silence, O Lord. Do not be far from me. Stir up yourself. Awake to my vindication. Awake to my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness and let them not rejoice over me. This is a prayer of vindication, right? The, The people of God, the Lord's church, These witnesses at the end of the age who are all but overcome, as it were, by this ascending beast and the seed of the serpent, um, they they are brought to life and their enemies see that. It's before the eyes of their enemies. Isaiah 52, verse 10, listen to this. The Lord made uh, bare his holy arm, his strength, right? The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. It's a vindication of God, a vindication of God's strength, a vindication of God's deliverance, a vindication of God's purposes, God's ways, God's church, God's people. This is a vindication of our God. So in Revelation chapter 11, at the resurrection of the just, when the just are raised from the dead, their enemies saw it and immediately it caused them to fear. They witness the people of God ascend into the clouds. The people of God are vindicated and their enemies fear. It's interesting, but clouds, often in scripture, clouds signify the presence of God. But coming on the clouds or being in the clouds, so to speak, is a sign of God's approbation. There are times at which um, a cloud comes in judgment. Again, God's showing up, God's presence in the clouds. But um, For example, Jesus Christ ascending into the clouds of heaven is a sign of God's approbation, God's approval. Um, Those brothers on the Mount of Transfiguration in the cloud, the Shekinah cloud of God's glory, a sign of God's approbation, God's approval. It was said that Ezekiel in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, that Ezekiel ascended into heaven on the storm wind, on the storm clouds of God, right? A sign of God's approbation, God's approval. There was a tradition among the Jews, the Jewish rabbis. It's called the assumption of Moses, if if you've ever heard those terms before, that Moses, there was a contention over Moses' body. It could not be found because Moses was assumed into heaven on the clouds, a sign of God's approval, God's approbation. So this this taking up of um, one in the clouds, a sign of God's approval, In Daniel, when Jesus Christ comes to the Ancient of Days, he comes on the clouds of heaven. When he returns, he'll return on the clouds of heaven. When the disciples saw him ascend at the ascension, he ascended on the clouds and they were told, why do you marvel? The one that you see go up in that way, he's going to come back the same way. A sign of God's approval, a sign of God's approbation. So in Revelation 11, God's people, God himself is vindicated and God's people are vindicated. They're vindicated in the eyes of their enemies. And God's people are vindicated in God's approval, receiving them up in the clouds of heaven, in the clouds like their Lord. But their ultimate vindication, their ultimate vindication, a vindication of our God, a vindication of the Lord Jesus Christ, is their own resurrection. 
They're raised from the dead. God breathes life into them and raises them from the dead. They stand on their feet. And Ezekiel, what Ezekiel saw was a great army, that valley of dry bones. The bones are rattling together, sinews coming on the bones, flesh being gathered to the bones. There's no breath in them. So Ezekiel prayed, Spirit of God, breathe upon them that these bones may live. And the Spirit of God breathed on them and they were alive. They stood on their feet, a great army. What Ezekiel saw is what John sees, a great army and fear falls upon their enemies. Really encouraging to the people of God, isn't it? That day is coming. Their ultimate vindication will be resurrection. In all of this, the wicked have grievously misjudged. Uh, and as soon as this, these witnesses are raised from the dead, as soon as that resurrection takes place, they realize they have misjudged. They see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. They realize they have misjudged. When the blast of that sound, that trumpet sounds at the end of the age, and the Son of Man comes as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, every eye shall see him, and all the tribes, tongues, and nations of this world will mourn over him as one mourns over a son. They're going to see him, and they will know that they have grievously misjudged, have grievously miscalculated. But consider this observation as well as we think about that particular fact from this text. Think with me now. Far from all of this, far from establishing a secret rapture of the church, right before the church, before the church experiences great tribulation, this text actually vindicates an obvious rapture of the church, an evident rapture of the church in the full sight of her, of her enemies, in the full sight of all those who dwell upon the earth, after she appears to have been killed by tribulation, right? So exactly the opposite of what dispensationalism asserts in their premillennialism. Um, this actually establishes not a secret rapture, but an overt and evident and obvious rapture of the church. Great fear fell on those who saw them, verse 12, and then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They, their enemies, heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, God's people, come up here, and they, God's people, ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. They were vindicated in the sight of their enemies. There simply is no text in the Bible that places the timing of the rapture of the church before a time of the tribulation. There is no text in the Bible. No text in the Bible. In fact, there are several texts that place it here where Revelation 11 does. After the church is preserved through tribulation and at the end of the age, at the one evident visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the one resurrection of the dead. Listen to a couple of texts in support of that assertion, okay? There are no texts in the Bible that teach a pre-tribulational rapture of the Lord's church. Matthew chapter 24, verse 20, 29, and listen with particular interest at the timing of the rapture. Verse 29, immediately after the severe tribulation of those days, the Lord has just explained a period of great tribulation, great tribulation, after that son of uh, perdition is revealed, after that one who makes abomination on the, wings of uh, on the wings of abomination makes desolate. After that sign of Daniel, the very last part of Daniel's 70th week, a period of severe tribulation, immediately after the severe tribulation of those days, 
The Lord says, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And with the sound of the trumpet, his angels will gather together his elect from the four corners, from the four winds of the earth. That is a picture of the rapture of the church. When does that gathering together take place? It takes place after the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the very end of the age, after a period of severe suffering, severe tribulation. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. Listen. In a moment, Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, it's not more than one trumpet, right? It's at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, that last trumpet, we're going to see that in our next text, blast of the seventh trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and at the sound of the last trumpet, the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Rapture the church, the dead will be raised, we shall be changed, we'll be glorified after the last trumpet, after that period of great tribulation, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Listen to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church, our gathering together to him. Concerning those two things, we ask you, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Don't be concerned that you missed it, right? Verse three, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. What day is he referring to? He's referring to that day on which the Lord Jesus Christ will return and we are gathered up to him. He's referring to that day. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. When does that falling away come? It comes during the time that we're now living in. It comes during this first, the first half of Daniel's 70th week. We live in a period that is called the great falling away. What's happening during this age? There are a bunch of people falling away, right? During this age, there's a great apostasy. The church is marked by apostasy and error, right? The professing church on the earth is wrought with error. This is the great falling away. That day, the day of his coming and the day of our gathering together with him in the air, to meet him in the air, the rapture of the church will not come unless that falling away comes first, which means it's going to come at the end of that period. And the man of sin is revealed. That's Matthew chapter 24, the man of lawlessness. That's Daniel chapter nine. That's this ascendant beast at the very end of the age, at the very end of the age. And then will be the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering up to him. Where does that place the rapture? It places the rapture after a period of great tribulation at the very end of the age, at the return of Jesus Christ, at the resurrection of the dead. See, it's um, the Bible in multiple places. That's not all. My Bible in multiple places places our gathering together with him. Our, the rapture of the church, it places that at the very end of the, the age. The timing of our gathering, timing of our resurrection is not unclear, not unclear in the Bible. We can't place a lack of understanding behind mystery. These things are not mysterious. I just read you three texts that are really clear about when all that takes place, right? We have to trust the Bible. That's when that happens. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me, let's look at this one together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a really helpful text. And interestingly, interestingly, this is a text that um, oftentimes 
uh, dispensational premillennialists will look at to help support that idea of a pre-tribulational rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and look there with me at verse 13. Verse 13. Paul says, verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. He's going to address the same, the same issue, right? The same subject. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, concerning your loved ones who have died. Don't be ignorant about this. And don't sorrow as others sorrow who have no hope. We have a hope. So let's sorrow as those who have hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God is going to bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. He's going to raise them from the dead and gather them to himself. Martha said of Lazarus, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Lazarus has died. They're mourning his death. Martha says to the Lord, I know he's going to be raised from the dead. I know he's going to rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Martha understood that part of her eschatology. Verse 15. And she took encouragement from that, right? She took encouragement from that. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, in other words, those who are alive when he comes back, will by no means precede those who are asleep. We're going to be raised together. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. It's not going to be secretive. It's not going to be quiet. This is going to be a loud event. This is going to be a noisy event. Everyone is going to hear it. I remember years ago, this pops into my head, forgive me. I was, um, went to meet uh, a brother for lunch and we were uh, sitting on a, a street. I'd parked on the street uh, about a block away, had to walk to the restaurant. And so we're sitting at lunch uh, on the street uh, next to the window. And it was a, a, sunny, a sunny day. And as we're sitting there eating lunch and talking, um, I didn't know what it was at the time, but lightning struck. Now, the Bible says that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, it'll be as lightning flashing from the east and the west. Everybody's going everybody's gonna to know it, okay? So we're sitting at the table, um, lightning struck. And from where we were sitting, I did not see a flash. All we heard was the lightning. And it was like a bomb went off. And that was the, the, exactly what I thought. And that's what everybody in that restaurant thought is a bomb went off. Now, we were in... I think we were, I was in Mount Dora. So if, if, if there was going to be a terrorist attack or a foreign country was seeking to invade, I'm not sure that Mount Dora is going to be on their radar. Like uh, that's a strategic, maybe it is a strategic military site. We, all, we don't know it, right? The Mount Dora, like a, under the mountain, it's a mountain there because there's a base underneath the mountain. I don't know. But as we're sitting there, this, it sounded like a bomb went off. And so, and we were in an utter shock. So we literally, everyone in the restaurant ran outside, ran outside. Um, well, what had happened was just behind the building, just one street, the lightning had struck and um, it was coming from where we couldn't see. Um, this is going to be a noisy event. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to be secretive in any way, shape or form. As Israel was gathered around Sinai and they saw the flashes of lightning and the thunder and the storm cloud and the fire on Mount Sinai and they heard the voice of God even Moses was knee-shaking fearful. Was exce- the Bible says exceedingly afraid. And the people of Israel cry out to Moses, Moses, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us anymore lest we die. Right? That's what the return of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in power. 
Lord Jesus Christ comes back with a shout, verse 16, with the voice of an archangel, that voice that sounds like many waters, Revelation chapter one, right? With the trumpet of God, the blast of that trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is called victory. This is called triumph, right? This is what it looks like to come in great power. Then verse 17, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, signifying God's approval, to meet the Lord in the air. The armies of God meet him in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, what Paul says, interesting, therefore comfort one another with these words. This should be a comfort to you and I that that day is soon coming. Be watchful, endure, persevere. Be a good soldier of the Lord Jesus Christ. This day is coming. What's interesting though is the timing. It's at the very end of the age when the Lord himself descends with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. When does that take place? We're about to see it in Revelation chapter 11, at the very end of the age, at the return of Jesus Christ. And at that time, after the church goes through her great period of tribulation, we who are alive and remain at that time will be caught up together with them in the clouds, those dead who are raised in him, and will meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture of the church. That's the rapture of the church. And it takes place at the very end of the age. Right? Clear? Really clear, amen? All right, this is exactly what's being described in Revelation chapter 11. Hang in there with me. Um, I get to go to six o'clock, don't I? Because we, um, no. Uh, this is exactly what's being described in Revelation 11. In verse 12, they ascended to heaven in a cloud. Their enemies saw them. Really clear, very clear. You can't hide these texts behind a supposed mystery. There's, there's not a mystery here. There, there are mysteries. This is, this is very clear. There is a rapture of the church. That rapture takes place at the end of the age, after tribulation, at the one return of Jesus Christ, at the final blast of the last trumpet, at the sound of, a, of an archangel, in power, in glory, with loud, noisy things going on. And God's enemies will watch. God's enemies will fear. God's enemies will weep. Revelation chapter one, verse seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen, let it come. I want us to understand this. And I want us to understand it. I want us to understand the timing of it because this is meant to be an encouragement to us. And if, you, if we understand the text incorrectly, we're gonna miss out on the encouragement that this text intends. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. We need to comfort one another with this hope of resurrection. This is the blessed hope of the church. The church through centuries, this has been her hope, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the just, right? The establishment, the consummation of the kingdom. We need to comfort one another with these words. We go through times like we've been through. We need to comfort one another with these words. I need to comfort myself. I'm preaching to the choir again. We need, I need to comfort myself with these words. There's great hope in these words, amen? Listen to Job. Listen to Job. When Job has gone through such significant difficulty, such significant hardship, listen to Job from Job 19, verse 25. Job said this, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Now this is Job in the midst of his suffering. I know that my Redeemer is not dead. My Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, after this body is delivered up in death, after I pass through that veil with my Lord, this I know that in 
my flesh, I shall see God. I love that from Job. And that hope, what was Job's hope? I'm going to see my Lord face to face. I'm going to be raised from the dead with him. I'm going to be raised from the dead in him. My eyes shall behold him and not another. I shall see him for myself, Job says, how my heart yearns within me. Amen, Job. How our hearts yearn within us. Job understood this. For those that do not take part in this resurrection, great fear. Great fear comes upon them. Not great hope, not great joy, not great rejoicing. Great fear comes upon them. Their gloating comes to an end. There is no comfort. There is no comfort for them. There is no hope in being raised from the dead. Only a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Only a certain terrifying reality of the second death. They witness the resurrection of those who have been raised by God. They witness God's vindication of himself, his just ways, his justice. They witness God's vindication of his people. And it's a vindication, it's a vindication that is the beginning of a final judgment upon them. This vindication ushers in a final judgment against those who dwell on the earth, against the ungodly wicked. They witness the destruction of this world system. And Revelation says that they fear, they fear. Look at Revelation 18 with me. Turn over to Revelation 18. And we see an example of this. This comes up again in this next cycle. Revelation 18, look there at verse four. John says in verse four, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. Come out of Babylon. Come out of that world system. Lest you receive of her plagues. God's about to judge her like he did Egypt. For her sins have reached up to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she, in that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen. I am no widow. I will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. There is a reckoning coming. This is the righteous retribution of God. Verse nine, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. They stand at a distance for fear of her torment. They see... God's vindication, and they stand at a distance. They don't weep and cry over their own sin. Right, really, the time of repentance at this point is past. They're not weeping for their own sin. They're weeping that Babylon has fallen. They're not going to get to exploit her any longer as they did to their benefit. And they stand back for fear as God pours out his judgment upon her for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. This world cast down in one hour. And the merchants of the earth, verse 11, will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Verse 14, see what they're concerned with at the end of the age? At this 
out this display of God's power and God's wrath and God's justice. This is what they're concerned with. Verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. They just stand there in fear saying, alas, alas, that great city was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. That's all of the trappings of this world. In one hour will come to utter nothing. Don't put your trust in those things, amen. And the Lord says, verse 20, Lord says to his people, rejoice over her. They gloated, they reveled, thinking they had won some victory. But in the end, the Lord commands his people, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, his holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. He's vindicated you. This is a great vindication. In Revelation 11, there's an allusion to this destruction. In verse 13, in Revelation 11, verse 13, in the same hour there, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake. That great earthquake we've seen before, right? At the, the seventh seal. It's a, it's a sign of the very end of the age. It's a sign of that climactic, um, cataclysmic, catastrophic, cosmos shaking, those shaking events that take place at the very end of the age, at the last, at, you know, pouring out of God's judgment at the return of Jesus Christ, right? That earthquake, that's language that portends the end. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. It's interesting, isn't it? The enemies of God persecuted his witnesses because of their message, their lives, their existence on this earth was a torment to them. They testified of them that their deeds were evil. Verse 10, these prophets of God tormented those who dwell on the earth. However... That supposed torment is nothing in comparison to the torment that they are being warned to flee from. When you look at verses like this, passages like this, passages like Revelation 18, they were, they were gleeful. They gloated over those, the death of those witnesses, Revelation chapter 11, when they believed that they had silenced them, when they silenced their witness. And then they were fearful. The, the torment or the message that tormented them, that message of warning, that message of judgment that tormented them, their torment, the sound of that message, is nothing like the torment they're going to face. That's the point, right? Nothing like the torment that they're going to face. Nothing like the wrath that they've been warned to flee from. In that same hour, verse 13, the judgment of God begins to fall on them, and it becomes a reality. After that long period of, of that long period comprising the church age, that long period we've identified as the first half of Daniel's 70th week, that long period that we've identified as the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, and then after that shortened, brief, brief period, severe tribulation at the end of the age, that period that was shortened for the sake of the elect, representative of the second half of Daniel's 70th week, represented here as three and a half days, because those, that time period has been shortened, John now is describing in verse 13, the final hour, the final hour. In his God, uh, a gospel, John often referenced 
the Lord's final hour, right? Jesus frequently reminded the people that his hour had not yet come. My hour has not yet come. John chapter seven, verse 30, they threatened to take him, but his hour had not yet come. John 12, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified, right? Jesus Christ was, was always looking forward to, in the gospel of John in particular, making reference to his hour, his hour. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. So John often references the hour of the Lord Jesus Christ, the hour of our bridegroom. The bride also has her hour. The bride is coming to her hour. Her hour is not yet come, but it will come. As certainly as it came for the Lord Jesus Christ and he entered into his glory, it will come for the bride of Christ and she will enter into hers. There is an hour coming, an hour in which judgment uh, will fall. Um, the judgment that she warned the wicked about, that hour is coming in which that judgment will fall. Revelation chapter three, verse 10. Think about this with me now. Because the Lord promises his people, because you have kept my command to persevere, the Lord says, I also will keep you. I will preserve you. I will hold you through the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Speaking of this particular hour represented here in Revelation uh, 11, at the climax of the age, certainly the hour, speaking of great tribulation, the entire tribulation period, but certainly this final hour before the end of the age. The Lord says in verse 11, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In application, brothers and sisters, what, what are we to do in hearing and meditating and thinking on these things? We must cling to him who is our life. We have to cling to him. Cling to him unto the end. He loved his own who are in this world to the end. We need to love him to the end. He is faithful. He will preserve us. We don't persevere in our own strength. He is the one who preserves us. So you will persevere. Cling to him. You cannot falter. You cannot halt. You cannot draw back. The one who puts his hand to the plow and then draws back is not worthy of him. In the face of God's enemy, when enemies, when they appear to prosper, you and I cling to him. Cling to him in faith. Gird up the loins of your mind, Peter says. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is be, be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The wicked have no hope. Verse 13, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. Those numbers are symbolic. Again, remember, seven, a number of, of perfection. Ten, number of completion. A thousand, all of it, right? Completely perfect, uh, completely done, completely wrapped up. This is the beginning of that tribulation, uh, of that final judgment upon the earth. The use of those numbers, the use of this language portends that it will come to its completed fruition. It will be brought to an end. It will be complete. It will be perfect. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. We don't have time this afternoon. We'll do it again soon um, to consider the reference here again in verse 13 to Ezekiel. We looked at the, the reference of um, verse 11 to Ezekiel 37 last week, briefly, or the week before. 
But the Gog oracles then begin in verse 38. So after this, this prophecy of a restoration of God's people, the Gog oracles begin in chapter 38, where Gog then, G-O-G, Gog, attempts to eviscerate, kill, exterminate the restored people of God. That's what that is a picture of there. And then in the Gog oracles, there's a great earthquake putting an end to all that. An earthquake is an indication of final judgment. The same pattern is repeated here. In chapter 6, verse 12, a great earthquake marks the beginning of the last judgment, a judgment that culminates in the seventh seal. Same pattern repeated here. We have this earthquake in 1113. It marks the beginning of the last judgment, and it's a judgment that will culminate in the blast of the seventh trumpet now. And as we've noted before, that language describes the judicial climax of history. It is going to come to a judicial climax. That is the beginning This is the beginning of this judgment. And that beginning is indicated by the language, a tenth of the city fell in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. It means that the judgment of those remaining is going to come very soon. So what effect did this have? What effect did this have? Verse 13, the rest were afraid. Word means terrified. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. The only response left to them was to acknowledge God's judgment and to acknowledge God as the true God of heaven. There's debate over whether some of these were converted or not. Whether giving God glory here indicates there was a mass salvation at the end of the age. I think there is indication in Romans chapter 11 that there will be uh, a great outpouring of God's grace through the gospel at the end of the age and the fullness of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. I believe that Romans 11 is speaking of just such an occurrence. That that could be something of the sort happening here. But I think more than likely, um, this is more in keeping with the language, for example, of Philippians chapter two, verse 10 this morning, where the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, to the glory of God. Um, Meaning that converted or unconverted, every knee will bow. Professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or rejecting Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. It will be just these kinds of judgments. God bearing his arm, Isaiah 29 in that kind of picture that will bring about all men bowing the knee um, and professing Jesus Christ as Lord. I think that's what's going on here in those earth dwellers. Those earth dwellers who stood afar in Revelation 18, not repenting, but mourning the loss of Babylon, are these earth dwellers who stand in fear of God's coming not giving glory to God, looking out for their own hide, right? Um, giving glory to God ultimately because they have no other thing to do but to profess and acknowledge that he is God, the God of heaven. It's like Nebuchadnezzar after his seven years of eating grass, coming to his senses and saying, giving glory to the God most high. It is the God most high that rules in the kingdoms of men. Nebuchadnezzar could say no other, Right? Verse 14 then concludes our, this, sec, this section of our text. The second woe is past. Behold, a third woe is coming quickly. We'll look at that woe in detail next week if the Lord allows. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I thank you for this encouragement that it gives your church. 
Encourage us with it, Lord. May these things sink from our head into our heart. May we understand them, apply them in our hearts and minds by your spirit. Lord, teach us, illumine our understanding. Cause us to meditate on these things and apply them in our daily lives. Help, help us as we, help us to think about them, to live in light of them as we go to the store, as we drive down the road, as we rise up, as we lie down, as we walk along the way. Help us to think about these things and to revel in you your justice, your victory, your provision made through the gospel your own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful you've been. Loving kindness, grace, and mercy you've poured out on us. Help us to meditate on these things. Help us to revel. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.